So Experian, for what over a hundred years now, has uh, leveraged the power of data. Like we've we've been a very powerful data company, and we've used that data to uh, improve the lives of consumers, uh, improve how sort of businesses make decisions. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto, and Web three and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. Welcome back to Stories in AI. Today, I speak with Sri Santanam. He's the Executive Vice President and General Manager for Global AI and Analytics at the Experian Consumer Solutions. <clears throat> Sri has a very deep background in analytics, AI, and data. Prior to Experian, he was a founder at the Oliver Wyman Labs, where he would actually help clients to win with analytics and data-driven products. He's an engineer by education and background, he studied at Stanford, specific topics around data science, and we had a very, very fascinating discussion. We talked about the future of finance with AI. We looked at how do we impact, how do you drive impact by leveraging data, analytics, and AI? What's a good framework to talk about setting up and institutionalizing an AI center of competence for a large organization? We talked about scaling data science efforts through hiring, through promoting from within, through setting up the right structure and processes to go make it happen. We also talked about how do, what is a good framework to make AI successful if you're getting started or you're well on your journey today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Shri, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you doing today? Doing great. Good to be here, Ganesh. It's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to the viewers and listeners. and. Um, as I mentioned, we started the show with the goal of sharing great stories from leaders like you and from the industry to inspire more action and more participation in artificial intelligence in the industry. So why don't we just uh, start with you and uh, tell us a little bit about how did you, tell me about your journey and how did you land up in AI? Uh, goes back, I'm going to date myself here, but that's okay. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was, uh, uh, just as I was getting my PhD at Stanford, which I didn't end up completing, I left to go into consulting. Uh, I, I was in that sort of stage in your life where you experiment and you try various things. And I was uh, 
quite attracted to a set of folks within the consulting firm I joined then, Oliver Wyman, uh, and it was a practice called retail value engineering. And for me, I was captivated by the leader of that practice, a former economist, a guy named Jacques Cesar, who just had this like uh, this unique magnetism about him. And he was an economist by training, and he uh, was what you'd call a sort of, in those days, sort of a deep data scientist of sorts. But he had this unique ability to cross the chasm between data science and uh, economics, which was purely seen as as almost this sort of uh, this grunt work you needed to do to to make the important decisions. And he was able to to cross that chasm and really captivate the senior leaders of businesses and get them to sign up for these incredibly aggressive transformation sort of programs. I remember this one time I saw Jacques in action where he was explaining a concept called margin arbitrage, uh, which involved sort of uh, a combination of economics, retail data on how you could go into a retail store and uh, would do what he called play judo with prices and change certain prices up and down and and really sort of make your customers happy, make the store. And and now, of course, it's it's fairly commonplace with the sort of ML and AI you have, but he managed to tell these captivating stories and then and then, as he would call it, squeeze blood from the stone of uh, data and and get the so that was my sort of uh, first fascination with AI, where I said, "Hey, this isn't just the the dark academic art of a few sort of interested folks. You can actually do some very powerful things in the real world with these things." And uh, my AI journey began there. Uh, from there, I ended up doing uh, a number of things. Started working on, uh, uh, always did this flavor of consulting where it was about bringing engineering approaches, AI and tech into what was uh, traditionally a, a field, slightly exaggerating for effect, where the Don Drapers of the world were seen as like uh, successful, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so really sort of coming into a world where you have this thing called sort of data and numbers and analytics, and that's going to give you sort of the answers is a little bit of an a alien sort of like a uh, concept in uh, many of the, uh, the circles and companies we were going into. But uh, it's a very, very different world now where ultimately, like if you're not doing that, you're seen as like a Luddite or or, uh, or dated. No, I, you know, it's funny you say that, like a few things. First off, you have a pretty impressive, inspirational story on why you got into AI compared to mine, which is reading science fiction books and watching a lot of movies that you mm -hmm. know inspired me to get into AI. On the other hand, you also touched upon something, you know, with your mentor and, and your your uh, about Jack. You mentioned the story that this is still the tough part in AI, right? There's a lot of problem solving that happens in AI, but crossing the chasm and bridging the the storytelling around it, the the, the need for data science to really explain in non AI expert related terms, how does this make a difference? How can you make a better decision with data? And squeezing the blood out of the data. I mean, I, I, I can so attest to it. So what do you do at Experian today? You are the EVP and the head of AI products and analytics. So explain what your typical day is like. What are you responsible for? Sure. 
So Experian, for what, over 100 years now, has uh, leveraged the power of data. Like we've, we've been a very powerful data company and we've used that data to uh, improve the lives of consumers, uh, improve how sort of businesses make decisions. And fundamentally, we've had a set of pioneers who before big data tech was introduced to the world, uh, they figured out that having a, a data marketplace or sort of collecting high quality data on consumer lending will be of value, right? And that's been the core of our business. Uh, that dynamic is changing and we see a lot of value migrating what we call up the stack. So from purely data to actually the decisions that are made with the data to products and services in the data. And ultimately, as we see where value is sort of heading, we see it, we see where Experian can bring value is actually in stepping into the value chain of our uh, our customers and solving those sort of problems. So my role as global head of analytics and AI is to help analytics and AI become core to our DNA and help our mission of having AI and analytics power the products and solutions we bring to our clients with that sort of data. Now, what does this mean from a day-to-day -day perspective? I'd say three broad pillars or categories of activities. Uh, the first is we have a mission to modernize how we carry out analytics and AI. And when I came in about a year and a half, two years ago, you had probably like 20, 30 plus different ways in which like a setup in which analytics could be carried out. Like you could have someone using their laptop and sort of SaaS, or you could have someone using sort of uh, a machine they spun up on AWS and TensorFlow, or uh, you could be using sort of a Hadoop Spark environment. It's a whole bunch of sort of ways. And uh, the first mission on modernizing and standardizing was saying, great, there's, there's obviously many ways to do this. But we want, by and large, a modern Silicon Valley style stack, which we work on, because it has enormous advantages in leveraging open source and sharing and sort of in leveraging a bunch of problems which have been solved. Right. I remember like 10, 15 years ago, uh, there were a, there was a team I was working with and they spent like two months writing how you do logistic regressions and gradient boosted trees with like like maybe several thousand lines of code and they wrote it from scratch. Now it will make them cry to know that you can do that with one line, right? If you yep. use the right sort of technology. So that's one that's modernizing. I think the second big agenda item I focus on is actually productizing analytics. So thinking about analytics much more than this uh, collection of human effort to a product and a proposition which we can bring to our customers, which is directed at a specific problem. And when you do that, you really start to think about analytics much and AI much more holistically. You start to think about the infrastructure, the engineering, the technology, everything that needs to happen to truly drive impact from that. So that's the second piece, which is productizing it. Mm -hmm. And then the third is commercializing analytics. Uh, for us, as is typical with a lot of the AI sort of an analytics space, you can view it as uh, a commercial model or bringing value through uh, human effort. And uh, 
And what we want to do is ultimately change that activity. It's a little bit like our healthcare system where like if you're engaging people on AI projects or you're engaging people on sort of analytics, you can measure sort of progress by the hours spent, but we want to sort of fundamentally change that and focus on outcomes and uh, change our commercial models. I don't, I don't care if you spend nine months or if you spend sort of one week, if you achieve these sort of outcomes, you can do that. And particularly in AI, like applying that sort of mindset can cause you to think very differently about products you take into the market, propositions, and how you think about your business. So those are the three sort of big things that we tend to focus on, uh, modernize, productize, and commercialize sort of AI. And on that sort of platform, the world's our oyster, right? Like we're a data company with different views and there's so many applications once you, you're set up to do that, that, that sort of thing. Awesome. I love, the, I love that framework, modernize, productize, and commercialize. In fact, I mean, you, can, you can write a playbook for chief data officers and chief analytic officers for companies to help do that. But before we, and I want to dive into each one of that, but before we go there, um, the, the, the financial services industry in general, and you guys are, you know, you're a data company, but heavily financial services, um, industry is going through a, a kind of a resurgence, right? Everything from, you know, the, the, the federal money printer printing all the money out there that's causing different dynamic shifts, if you will, the unbundling of the traditional banking system with the rise of, you know, decentralized finance, crypto networks, and so forth, uh, to just, you know, even the, the new collateralized, non-collateralized ways of lending with DeFi, CeFi kind of technologies, right? So there's a lot of changes happening in the ecosystem. How is all of this really going to, I mean, help the, the end customer? I mean, I always wanted to ask this question to someone in financial services, right? There's a lot of, you know, these powerful technologies will change and increase efficiencies for the systems and the organizations in itself. But how is this really, this disruption really helping the, the, the consumer? So give me your thoughts on it. I have sure. My... <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think the changes that we're going to see over the next five to 10 years are like profound. And uh, in my view, I think what you're seeing in decentralized sort of finance, uh, I mean, crypto has been around for a while. I think it's uh, reaching a little bit of a tipping point there in decentralized sort of finance. But I, I think that will play out over the next 10 years. Uh, what, from my vantage point in the businesses that were focus, uh, focused on in, in that financial services space, tend to focus on lending. And what's happened in the last, beneath the surface, there was always a lending revolution underway. And if you rewind 10, 20 years, ultimately, like, uh, like lending was like very, very conservative and very basic. Where I grew up in, uh, in India, when I was sort of young, and given your background, you'll relate to some of this, Ganesh. Where, like, when when we had to go and and build a house, my my parents literally had to go sort of and borrow money from friends and relatives to sort of get the whole sort of sort of house. And if I think about uh, entrepreneurship, my my mother was uh, looking to study for a PhD in linguistics, and uh, and to to raise money, there was something called a chit fund, which was largely a community-based sort of sharing. So uh, in general, like the, the short answer to your question, what are the changes, which both I hope and we'll see is a dramatic shift in financial inclusion, right? And 
fundamentally how individuals and consumers are viewed as uh, credit worthy is going to sort of change. And uh, for uh, a lot of time, we've had significant portions of the population who are unbanked or what we call credit invisibles, right? And there's no information. And the default assumption is because I have no information on you, you are not worthy of credit or I'm going to be very conservative. And that's going to fundamentally sort of change, right? And it's going to change in a few ways. Uh, first, the whole digital revolution in lending means that uh, financial institutions are scrambling to make the process much more seamless, reduce times for approvals, uh, let consumers uh, have access to different financial products. Uh, you have in innovative products like buy now, pay later. But underneath it all, right, you have to get more nuanced and more sophisticated about the methodologies that you use for lending. And this is where AI and ML come in. Right? Mm. Uh, and historically, most lending happened slightly exaggerating for effect on the basis of a, a few like human developed rules, right? And I might sort of say some rule, if you've had a bankruptcy in the last sort of 10 years, I won't sort of lend to you. And they've been relatively sort of crude, right? Uh, and now we're moving into the world where we have like <clears throat> scores, but even today in financial services, uh, most sort of scores are very much sort of logistic regression sort of uh, driven and gradient boosted trees and machine learning is slowly starting to sort of come in. So I think it's going to have a profound impact, particularly with the ability to explain some of these decisions uh, with uh, explainability and also uh, an awareness around bias and fairness. So I think we're going to see a very significant impact on the access and the ability for uh, consumers to to uh, to borrow. Yeah, no, it's um, it's interesting. It kind of things um, I have a which might actually uh, appear as a very out of you know non-related uh, analogy, but I was for some reason I ran into and I was reading some um, um, Adler uh, psychology, right? The, the difference of schools of thought, the Adler school of thought, which is very close to Eastern philosophy uh, on like, you know, it is not the past that matters. It's your representations of where you are in your intent and in the future, right? So it's yeah. the future, which is based on your intent. I take <clears> that <throat> into traditional lending today. Like you, you make that example of credit scores, which is purely a function of what happened in the past never based on potential. I mean, I understand it's a banking system, you got to manage risk, right? And what really, and I know this is a, a maybe a crazy question, but what really appealed to me when I looked at DeFi was the notion that, look, you, it's collateralized lending. So there is, I don't need to know who you are. I don't care about your background. But I know that if you're holding crypto and I'm betting on the fact that the crypto market is going to have that one-way path towards some side, right? As long as it's like, Ethereum, Bitcoin kind of stuff, right? Not not Dogecoin, right? <laughs> so I, I'll let you lend and borrow against it, and then you create a double-sided marketplace and stuff. That to me is a very fundamental change, right? In terms of how we view lending as a whole. Now, the efficiencies you're driving into the system is going to drive more financial inclusion because end of the day, institutions are still the ones that are bringing people into the fold, the unbanked into the banking system and so forth, right? So I, I was just curious on your thoughts on, you know, the the 
is AI, the use of AI ML will let you, is it going to let you start doing more predictive lending, but not so much based on just past historical, you know, data, time series data that just you got about that person or individuals like that? I mean, is there some, you know, I don't know whether it's um, other data uh, that you receive that gives you information about being able to predict better? Uh, talk to me a little bit about it, maybe a completely... Uh, it may be a stupid question. No, not at all. Uh, I think if you look at uh, uh, the, the core of it, the question you're asking, if you look at what a credit score does today and even sort of models, the, the intent is certainly to uh, predict future behavior, right? Or, uh, uh, or predict the likelihood of someone sort of defaulting. Uh, the challenges we face today is based on uh, the regulation in our sort of industries, uh, there are very, uh, I don't think the regulations themselves are the problems. Uh, what ends up happening is the response to uh, how you want to work within that regulatory framework seems to result in a very sort of conservative view on the models you use and the data you use, right? So I think two things are happening. One, I think uh, more information and sort of more data to help make that sort of decisions happening experience been at the forefront of this. And we've got, in addition to our uh, uh, traditional trade line data, we've got uh, data like sort of clarity in our sort of bureau. We've got a number of sources of data which are broadening that sort of spectrum. And we're also starting to lead the way in saying, hey, it isn't just logistic regressions or or uh, a traditional sort of models which we should be using, we can use models like sort of gradient boosted trees, others which, and will help you go through the regulatory framework and, 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 and sort of manage these. So I think there is a significant sort of wave and movement around sort of those things. I think these things will uh, uh, only get more sophisticated over time now. I do think it's a while where we'll see a deep neural net making sort of credit decisions. Sure. And, uh, but uh, I do think there's a lot of room to go to be much more financially inclusive and bring in sort of broader data as we do this. Absolutely, absolutely. Now talking about data, one of the things that, you, you know that famous idiom that says, all models are wrong and some are useful. I like mm -hmm. to think there's a, all data is useless, it's what you do with it, right? So it's what you do with it. It's a good way. Right. So experience a data company. So give us some examples of how you're leveraging the data that those analytics products you're building, the AI products you're building to really improve the lives of the uh, customer or the, 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 the borrower there. So give, give me some examples of the kind of projects you all are working on. Sure. I think there's a huge amount of work in the areas of uh, lending and financial inclusion, which you're probably aware of, our data is used by uh, most of sort of the banks in North America and sort of globally uh, to power sort of their decisions on sort of lending. And we have products, services, we support all of that. But there's also portions of our business which are not that well known with the data we use, which it might be worth sharing. So we have a <clears throat> we have a healthcare sort of business where uh, we are we help uh, manage claims data from providers and uh, helping them sort of create and uh, submit claims to payers. And as part of that, one of the uh, products we're looking to build 
and create is a uh, an AI powered uh, denial claims denial score, which actually helps providers uh, understand if their claims have been appropriately documented and submitted to be able to get uh, the appropriate uh, uh, payments. And uh, those are the sort of things which, to me, I'm personally quite passionate about because healthcare, uh, there's a huge amount of waste in the healthcare system. And products like these start to help take out some of that sort of waste in the system and start to chip away at what I think is a huge opportunity for sort of consumers and, and the nation as a whole. Oh, I, you know, healthcare in the U.S. is definitely a mess, right? And and no, you're right. I think there. I, I personally, I remember working with a large cancer system back in, um, I want to say, 2017, 18 timeframe, where we helped them do the same thing, which is like look at how do you predict the likelihood of a claim not being approved based on diagnostic codes and stuff like that, which is always a human error in the picture, right? And uh, uh, no, I think this is this is fascinating. And the fact that you can now bring in a lot more richness to a problem like that because of your knowledge of the ecosystem and the data that you have. So it's fascinating. Now, the the machine learning and AI is a, a data problem, right? And But in general, the, the value realization for AI has been pretty low in the industry, unless you're like a, uh, unless you're like a Facebook or a Google or a Microsoft or like Apple, who's got all that data and all the captive audience and the algorithms, and the resources they can pour in, it's really hard. It's been a snowflake exercise everywhere, right? Um, how, you know, uh, what are you seeing in your, you know, in your organization, but also across the industry when you talk to your peers in the industry? What are you seeing in terms of the value realization with AI? Is it far and few in between? Is it scaling? Is it improving? Give us a picture. Yeah, so I think I think we're certainly seeing benefit, uh, but the approach we're taking also is designed to front load and uh, and accelerate some of the learning so that we can fail small and sort of stop quickly. For instance, we don't have the we don't have the luxury or the R and D budgets of a Facebook or a Google to be able to like stand up and experiment on things for enormous amounts of sort of time. But what we do have is a is an R and D and an innovation model set up, which uh, I would describe it more in the uh, more like sort of what Amazon uses. So we have a structure where it involves a few sort of principles. First, uh, it is uh, focused very much on working backwards from impact. So we start first by conceiving and writing uh, the impact that we expect to achieve. And relatively quickly, we try and see if ultimately the AI and the project that we have will achieve that sort of impact. We even push it far enough to actually say, can we get the impact with our in our business and our customers' business to be able to get sort of what we call a proof of value, where like you are you have a willing cost, customer willing to pay for this, and uh, less from a purely commercial lens, but from an impact lens. If you've created impact good enough that a customer is actually willing to pay for it, then that certainly has created an important sort of watermark. And often we find there's a lot of stuff that can be in the realm of 
customers and folks and everyone finds it really, really interesting. But when you ask the hard question, like, will you be willing to pay for it? And you can you go for it? It falls sort of short. So we've set that sort of principle as an important part of how we operate. Now, it does mean that naturally it it sort of restricts you in, in how you operate, but we're okay with that sort of trade-off and it's an important sort of principle in how we operate. The second principle which uh, we use is actually we think about AI uh, in more of a holistic way. And uh, I would describe maybe uh, uh, slightly exaggerating for effect, if you look at sort of the data scientist view of what AI success looks like, it looks largely, it, it is largely at the point where you've created better AI performance, right? Mm -hmm. I've created this algorithm which can see better than a human. I've created this uh, algorithm which can like tell you that there's like, the, like this cohort of customers will default uh, better than sort of what we used to traditionally. But that's only one aspect. We actually think there are four aspects there's AI scalability, which is the second aspect, which is great. You've, you've created this algorithm. Can you actually create a scalable sort of product or an ecosystem or scaffolding around it to have a whole sort of ML ops system? Third, can you actually get AI adoption impact? So the humans who need to work with this, are they willing to trust and adopt and manage it? And finally, sort of like AI trust, right? Does it pass the standard of being sort of trustworthy, transparent, and explainable so that this can actually be scaled. And often you find that there's interesting things which will check the box on one, right? A better performance algorithm. But then when you go and look at it more holistically, like it has a problem. I'll give you an example here. There was uh, one of the companies which we were working with and they have this problem, they had this interesting idea on predicting attrition of their customers from their data. And there were a few data scientists who'd gone and in theory cracked the problem. They'd built like a neural net, which predicted sort of uh, better sort of attrition, but no one was using it. And when you dug in, you actually found that, well, first they were solving a slightly different problem required for adoption. They were predicting adopt like churn at the three or four month mark in advance of customers. And when you talk to salespeople, they said, well, at the three or four month mark, it's great that you can predict it. But that point, like, I really can't do much about my customers. It's sort of too late, right? And that's a great prediction at three, four month month. But even if you had an approximate prediction at the six month mark, I could have done something about it, right? So really like solving a slightly different problem would sort of help. The second thing was they said, well, this is like really complicated, but I need to, before I talk to my customer, have some confidence that what's the basis. And what we found was simple explainability, like saying, well, this customer's not called you in like six months and this is happening. And now underneath it, the data scientist might look at it and say, that's a really simplistic way of saying because your customer didn't call you because it's a deep neural net and there's so many other things going on. But the top four or five reasons why this might be true was a really long way in in bringing the human along the journey, right? So what we find is actually to get AI to work, there's a much more holistic approach, which involves those three or four areas beyond just pure pure AI performance, which of course is is what sort of romanticized these days, right? No, it's it's a that's a fascinating story, by the way. And and I want to break each of those four things up and ask you a question specific to that, right? 
One is on the data science side, right? One of the things that I'm consistently hearing from all my clients and folks that I talk to is hiring. Hiring good data scientists is really, really hard. And, you know, uh, they're no longer even in academia. They're in one of those four brands that I talked about most of the time. How are you, what are you seeing? How are you going about hiring good people? And or do you need to hire the best of the best data science? Or are you leveraging tools and practices that, you know, alleviates that pain a little bit? Talk to me a little bit about talent, data science talent. Yeah, it is a huge challenge, and it's something we think about sort of every day. Uh, there's a few things we're doing. I think the first is to appreciate the value of 10xers and uh, have a system which allows you to go after that sort of talent. And uh, if if you think about a more traditional mindset to the hiring and compensating, you you fundamentally struggle with the question of sort of why two software engineers or two sort of AI sort of uh, experts at this near about same level, one one should sort of rightfully be sort of compensated two two and a half x times the other person. Like that just doesn't make sense in a traditional sort of framework. But when when you actually look at it with a slightly different framework, and you actually say in this space now now that sort of framework, if you were like if you were looking at let's say maybe just to illustrate an example like people who scoop ice cream or bricklayers that's broadly true right it's unlikely that a bricklayer the best bricklayer in the world versus the most sort of uh versus the the a median sort of bricklayer probably be sort of like one one and a half x 50 60 percent sort of like better Brilliant. but when you look at that difference in sort of the best sort of AI and ML engineers, that can be like like 20, 30, 50, 100x. And, and I think uh, the guys at Netflix have written some articles about this, and I think it's called like some of the experiments they've done in Santa Monica. So they've taken the same problems and given it to sort of different like groups or of, of people. And you find like, like same problems are cracked like 10, 100x sort of faster. I mean, there's a reason you have these valuations and companies getting these pieces right so if you truly believe that there are individuals in this space who have that disproportionate sort of impact then you quickly realize that a traditional sort of framework for hiring just isn't going to give you that right and you have to sort of manage that so uh, really the notion of helping organizations understand the concept of quality over quantity is an important one because it's it's very reassuring to say you know i have like have these 10 people working on this and you're saying like, oh, there's just like one guy on this? Like really, like that's that's like really hard. Like, uh, so I think that's one part. I, I would say with we're, we're making a shift, we're figuring out how to sort of do that. It's a combination of adjusting our system, but also if you look at a place like experience and innovation, the sort of things we do, we were a great, place for people at this at the stage of their career where they're very high potential uh but they're early in that track record right and at a place like us in our sort of team we are ready and willing to make a bet to give them an enormous amount of responsibility if we believe they have the potential and that same person walking into a netflix or an amazon sure might get an interesting job but it would be fairly narrow they're not going to sort of take someone with that potential without a track record and say, hey, you figure out sort of my recommender systems now, right? Like, so that I think is an interesting opportunity for willing to both hire on 
potential for people who have a very high, very strong potential early in their career, showing promise with a track record, and also value them. That's sort of our our sort of method and how we're going after folks. That's awesome. That's a really good framework. I mean, one, you know, to summarize, right, have a framework for the 10Xers, right, which is fundamentally understand. And there's a lot of education, I'm sure, in the process, right? You're educating everybody, including HR, leaders, you know, C-suite and stuff. Look, software development is very different from AI development or machine learning and data science, right? So skill sets are different, impact is different, right? And uh, so have a framework for getting the superstars, but then also start looking to build an ecosystem that is conducive for not folks with the, who, are, who are coachable, trainable, but then who are in that career path wherein they're not really the industry experts yet, but they could be the industry experts and provide them a path and open it up and attract them through the opportunity of providing. That's fascinating. That is, it is, and and I think we're we're seeing some success here, right? Like, what are the hard conversations? The hard conversations are when, like, you have to talk to your head of HR and explain to them why, like, this promising sort of candidate, right, who has very high potential but not sort of the track record, you you want to do something sort of different than like the stands at that level, right? Like, how do you navigate that conversation? How do you create the framework? Second, those are what some of the tough conversations to navigate. The second is when you have a candidate who's sort of telling you and saying, great, Shree, like, I'm, I'm, you have an interesting opportunity, but like I have like Netflix here and I have Amazon and I have sort of Google and I could be going there. Why should I join you instead of them? And, and I think those are the difficult conversations. You should be able to sort of tell a really good story around like why it, why it's uh, a great opportunity for the individual. And I think we're, we're slowly sort of getting there, but I think that's an important battle we think we're starting to win. Awesome. Scalability, the AI scalability aspect. And one of the things, I think it was in your Forbes, uh, Forbes interview that you actually talked about, AI and ML needs to be, it's, it has to move from being a bespoke exercise of building a problem for anything, everything, uh, like building a model for every problem to more an engineering discipline, or how do you look at it from a systems design and systems engineering perspective? Elaborate that on that a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, concept. When uh, in my sort of previous life, uh, I actually started sort of observing this like interesting like tension between uh, pure sort of data scientists and engineers, right and uh, when I double click on this, I found it was quite interesting. And this was, I think, like five, six years ago. I found that there were a couple of engineers at Google who had talked about almost like exactly the problem. I, if I remember the name right, I think it was uh, a guy named Kaz Sato who talked about the MLOps problem. And he had this like really clear and fascinating description of the problem. He said, there is this big chasm between data scientists and engineers. And data scientists will train a model and sort of build something and then hand it over to sort of engineers. Then engineers will take that and turn it into like something that works at production grade, C, C++, or something like much closer to sort of like the metal, and it's in sort of production, and it's sort of working. And now fast forward two months and then say, go to the engineers and say, hey, we need to make some of these changes. And it's like, I don't know, like talk to the data scientists and you go to the data scientists, and say, I don't know, talk to the data scientists when stuff's sort of broken. So like, I was like, oh, this is a real problem. And even Google has it. And, uh, and, and this is now obviously like famously known as the MLOps problem, right? So really the problem of how do you take 
interesting data science, ML, and AI, and move it into production, and actually apply all of the engineering approaches you apply for software development as you sort of manage it, right, is still like an important piece. And I'd say a significant portion of data scientists who are, and it's sort of basic things that uh, are slightly alien to the data science world now, using code repositories, like writing code in a structured way, having version control, managing sort of data. These are all like really common, well-known software principles, which have been there for like ages, but like they're all alien and new to data science, right? Data science like, I'm gonna build this model and go on. So really that whole world is coming together, right? And uh, you see Andrew Eng talking about this when he says, like uh, it'll become uh, uh, an engineering discipline. So the question, and, and equally, if you go to a data scientist and say, hey, like write production code and check this stuff, and be like, I'm, I'm just looking for the right sort of answer here. So I think bringing that together and how you solve that sort of problem, how you create sort of ML ops, when models are in their sort of like life in sort of production, how do you retrain them? How do you expand them? How do you maintain the transparency, right? And and I think that whole sort of like problem is a space where obviously leaders like Google, Facebook, Netflix, the bank companies have made a ton of sort of progress, but it's still not sort of mainstream as yet. Uh, we've made a lot of investments in this space. We're bringing this into financial services and the whole ML ops problem is an important one which we focus on. You know, it's interesting you say that. There's like, um, I, I want to say there's two or three different aspects of ML Alps that I, I think about a lot. One is there's a lot of noise in the system. That's the hottest thing everybody's talking about ML Alps, which is no longer just about giving you visibility on a model in production. I mean, that's a part of it, but that does not yes. solve the problem, right? It's just another bag of tools that you can do it. Most ML Ops vendors, that's it's observability of the models, which is great, but an aspect of ML Ops. The it's an interesting thing. One of the things that we uh, realized, and Andrew Ning just recently talked about this notion of MLOps being, we have to move from being a model-centric world to a data-centric world, right? And mm -hmm. what he means by that is saying the MLOps needs to be all about, not about trying to tweak and manage the models and the variation. The real problem you're going to be dealing with is the data in production, right? So one of the things we do, like Beyond Minds, um, little small plug, what we do is... Um, deal with those production side problems like data drift. How do you actually deal with noisy data? Like what you train in a sterile environment versus what you see, right? And a lot of the problems cannot just be solved by throwing tools at it. You have to create a human in the loop mechanism to go do that and stuff. The, the third thing uh, I, I wanna bring up, and this is something I, well, I, I think you'll enjoy meeting this gentleman. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago called Laszlo Srangner. Laszlo is a small boutique consultant. He does data science training. And he's had a mm. very, very, and I'll send you the, that show episode, but he had a very interesting point of view that his background is he was the lead scientist, data scientist at Candy Crush Saga, you know, the famous mm. game. Uh, and before that or after that, he went to a hedge fund. He was a hedge fund uh, quant, right? He was doing data science for a hedge fund. And one of the things he learned in the, the hedge fund side was like, every model you write is going to go into production. There is no writing a model and then that not going into production. Mm. What that did for them was, you know, for him at least, was it created a mindset that you cannot help, you cannot have a system that's going to take care of this. As a data scientist, you need to have the visibility of what it takes to go into production. And to your point on there are tools and capabilities doing it, 
So he had a very provocative thought of how do we retrain data science to actually data scientists to start thinking about what does it take to being solely responsible for the end state of a model that is being developed. So I'll, I'll send you that. It was, it was a very, I would say, a thought-provoking conversation, which was like, everybody's approaching it from a, hey, there's a systems engineering problem to be solved. Yes, there is. And that's going to be, you know, most organizations going to do that. But most people are not Google, right? They don't have the scale. Yeah. How do the smaller groups do it? And this was a good way to actually approach that problem. Um, trust. Let's, you know, shift into trust and um, talk a little bit about how would you look at, you know, what are the principles of trust that you look for in developing or launching an AI-based product? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think one which is becoming uh particularly important as ML and AI is starting to get sort of more pervasive, right? You you see uh, a number of these uh, oft-publicized episodes of sort of bias and, uh, and uh, the Apple card sort of instant. There's a number of these things which, in my view at least, tend to get a disproportionate amount of sort of media attention. Uh, but it is nevertheless an important sort of topic. And we think about maybe three key areas as we think about trust. The first is transparency, right? Where it's got to be sort of clear and understandable, ultimately sort of what you are doing. The second is explainability. So the second being then, can you explain the principles uh, and in some form, can you explain the criteria and the ways in which your model is going to make sort of decisions. Uh, and the third is bias and fairness. So can you actually assure me that your model is following a set of policies and principles which fit with what I believe are consistent with either a regulatory framework or what we believe is the right thing to do? So it's those three things. Transparency I use in the sense of almost a uh, a more sort of mechanical sense rather than uh, being sort of Full explainability of sort of models because uh, I I do uh, like when I say transparency I don't mean never use a deep neural net because I mean that's sort of a fundamental level like no one really knows like exactly how sort of some of the biggest sort of deep neural nets of our sort of time sort of work but it does mean sort of say hey this is what's sort of powering it this is what's powering your system that's an important sort of principle so it's a conscious choice consumers sort of make and they can opt in. Second, you want to give them a sense of explainability, right? Saying, hey, uh, I know if I do these things that this uh, will make a decision in this sort of form. You And if we think about sort of lending, you want to give consumers very clear visibility into things which will make them more credit worthy and things which are likely to sort of make them less credit worthy. And finally, sort of bias and fairness, that's an important sort of uh, aspect for us certainly, and ensuring that there's fair representation and sort of equal opportunity in how we manage some of these things. Awesome, awesome. Now, trust is a, it's more than just a big word. And, you know, as somebody went, once told me, right, like there's trustworthiness and there's trust, right? And trust, trust happens when both parties agree on the fact that, you know, what I'm delivering is going to do what it takes it's going to do for me and it's not going to take me for a ride and so forth. So, but it's a, it's a very important aspect. And, um, and, and there's a lot of, I would say, like you said, there's a, there's a, there's a big push from research that is actually driving a lot of innovation. And it's fascinating to see the, the short time between something when it's 
are coming out of research into getting into products and capabilities that you can actually leverage and use. Mm-hmm. Um, bring it home for me. You know, uh, tell me how. Give me your what are your set of gui- uh, guiding principles or advice for organizations that are looking at either starting or scaling their AI journeys. You know, you've, there's a lot of gems in this conversation, but bring it home for me. Uh, probably the three most important things for a company which is uh, not a Google or a Facebook, and it's sort of somewhere in the, I'd call it the discovery phase of their AI journey. Uh, one, uh, companies, chief financial officers can run out of patience sort of fairly quickly, we're starting to see. So I would say focus on working backwards from impact. And I think once you've created the space for that sort of investment, then it gives you much more sort of room to experiment and drive. So that would be sort of number one. Uh, Number two, I would say make the case for uh, 10x sort of talent. That's like important. And even if you're not sort of fully successful, getting people to come along that sort of journey will create the space because the worst thing you can do is have sort of uh, a lofty ambition with sort of mediocre and poor sort of talent. You just will sort of get sort of nowhere, right? Uh, And third, I would say take a, a more sort of holistic approach to AI, which is, uh, think not just about sort of the performance, truly think about sort of what are the various aspects of AI which need to come together to achieve sort of number one. So it's uh, scalability, it's adoption, it's sort of trust. So those are probably the three things, backwards from impact, talent, and holistic approach. Awesome. No, that's been great. This has been awesome. I got some quick and rapid fire questions for you. And, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, we've actually overshot the time that I originally had planned, but this has been a fascinating conversation. Okay, here we go. W- give me a story of how we as human beings will be interacting with AI 100 years from now. See, it's like to me, 100 years in this time frame is almost like an eon, right? It could, uh, it we, we could have been overtaken by artificial general intelligence at that point. Uh, maybe I'll try and answer that by flipping that around and saying, what's one thing which uh, fundamentally won't sort of change and won't have sort of changed? I do think there will still be a significant amount of value we as humans can bring to everyday life and businesses and sort of focus. Because one of the biggest concerns we see today, which only gets sort of amplified, is will will AI like fundamentally like replace us? Will it replace our jobs? Will it replace things? Uh, So my belief is even a hundred years from now, humans would have evolved where society will have carved out a set of activities and value that we can bring as society and and, and complement that, right? That I think is is my sort of firm belief. And I think that really, uh, and as a rapid fire question, an important point I want to make, I think in the products and services that we build, uh, a, a lot of it is about intelligence augmentation. So we see ourselves building like Iron Man suits, which are sort of like deadly powerful for humans, rather than sort of building like Terminators, right, which are sort of autonomous, like an army of Terminators. So I think that that's sort of fundamental, and it is how we approach it. AI will be 
you know, or should have been already augmented intelligence than just, you know, artificial intelligence. Okay. <laughs> um, AGI, artificial general intelligence. Thoughts on it? Do you believe it? Do you think humans will be enslaved by machines? I don't know if they will be enslaved. So I think uh, I, uh, I, I think it might be a possibility, but I don't see enough conviction. But I've uh, Nick Bostrom's book on super intelligence, which you might be familiar with, it has uh, some uh, it has a fascinating take on the journey we'll go through. And the part which stuck in my head the most was, we could we could already be in a world where we have AGI. It's just that the AGI is decided that uh, the smart thing for it to do is to stay undercover and observe before it decides to take over the world, right? So I found that sort of slightly scary and fascinating as well. Maybe there is, but uh, but if if it were to play out, that's a fairly plausible way for it to play out, right? Like, and if you if you mirror it to some of what. Uh, some of the theories around sort of COVID, it was an experiment in a lab which has sort of gotten out, right? Maybe uh, maybe one day we'll, we'll find that, that there's some AGI which has sort of run loose and we're looking to control it for a bit. It was, it was doing a random experiment, you know? So <laughs> it's funny, I think, you know, that, that particular part of Nick Bostrom's book also, there's a battle to the simulation hypothesis as well, right? Where you're already in a simulation, you just don't know it, but you're... Yes. You know, your 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 consciousness hasn't expanded enough to understand all of that. <laughs> right. Uh, what is what is one resource if somebody's wanting to start an AI today? Give me one resource that they should go to or learn from. What do you recommend? Uh, I don't think what I'm going to say will be novel, but maybe I'll try and add a little value on how to use it. So Andrew Eng's Coursera, that's a great place to start. But what I found is uh, when people go and look at Andrew Eng's sort of Coursera. There's some folks who are like, great, this is perfect, and they go and they use it and it, it's helpful. It starts them off on a great AI journey. But I would say if you go into the first few and you find that it's inaccessible, persist. Go back and break down and say, here are the three or four things you need to learn to understand that first lesson and chip away. And if you persist, I found a lot of people who essentially get through that sort of journey, right? So Andrew Eng's Coursera would be my advice, but but persist. If you don't follow what's sort of going on, break it down and get the things that you need. And and it usually results in sort of a, a fair bit of education. That's awesome, Sri. This has been such a pleasure. Where can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you on the internet? Uh, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn and I welcome sort of discussions and sort of thoughts on this. Very much appreciate you having here, Ganesh. It's been having me, uh, appreciate you having me. It's been a fascinating conversation. Oh, it's been a blast. This, is, this has been amazing. And thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.